It's a joy to be with you guys, and I'm going to open up the Bible to Philippians chapter 4 with you today. Philippians chapter 4, um, our church just finished teaching through passage by passage the book of Philippians, and so I gave Alb several passages that we could talk about from that series, like, hey, this could be good, that could be good, and secretly, I was kind of hoping that Alb would not pick this message in particular, and here's why. Today, we're going to talk about peace. But me talking about peace is a little bit like the feeling you have when you go to see the doctor and the doctor seems to have a cold or something. And you're like, should I really be listening to you? Or you show up to a personal training session at the gym and your gym teacher is eating a donut. Because I am not somebody who naturally is inclined to be easygoing and peaceful. I'm just not. Um, some people can look at a cloudy day and see the silver lining, right? You have those friends. You're like, oh, it's, it's raining. Oh, but there'll be a rainbow, right? You have one of those friends. I'm the kind of person, it's a beautifully sunny day, not a cloud in the sky. I look up at the sky and I think, here it comes, the hundred year drought. <laughs> right? That's just my personality. Uh, every day, I don't know if you can relate to this. Every day I sort of wake up. And check whether I'm going to be anxious or not by doing a quick inventory of life. So I think, okay, uh, is there any re- anything wrong with my health today? Okay. Uh, is there anything wrong with the church? Uh, is there anything wrong in marriage or parenting? Is there anything wrong with my friends? Am I, do I have any conflict with anybody that I know? Is there anything difficult happening in the world? And, and once I get through the end of that, if everything lines up, then I go, Ah, well, I guess I have to be at peace today, right? It's a little bit like, now I don't advocate slot machines. I'm not telling you to play slot machines, but it's a little bit like we wake up in the morning and pull the lever and just hope that one day all of the little peace signs will line up and then we'll go, ah, like now I'm at peace. But really, that's a terrible way to live life because how many times have you woken up and there is nothing going wrong in any area of your life, right? There's always something, usually more than one thing. And that's why this passage in Philippians, I think, is so helpful to me. Um, Paul the Apostle is closing his letter to the Philippians by giving kind of a laundry list of encouragements. And they seem kind of disconnected, but I think they're all held together by this theme of peace. And rather than uh, having an approach where you just wait for peace to happen to you, Paul the Apostle is going to encourage us, he's going to encourage us to go out and get peace, to experience peace, to live peace. So let's read this. Philippians chapter 4, begin reading in verse 1. This is God's word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you'd be with us as we explore your word today. Amen. Amen. Well, this section seems, like I warned you, it seems a little bit all over the place, uh, but the theme is peace. Now, the first few verses, one through three, are about peace with other people. Uh, verses four through seven are sort of about peace internally in yourself. And then Paul ends with an encouragement to think intentionally about certain things so that, and to practice what we know from the Bible, so that at the end of verse 9, the God of peace will be with us. Now, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to cover verses 1 through 7, and you can do a choose-your-own-adventure study of verses 8 through 9 on your own. So, verse 1 is a transitional verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers... My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So he's charging them to stand firm in the Lord, which is sort of a summary encouragement after his last section and is a headline for the next section. So we're going to cover two threats to peace today, two threats to peace. The first threat is disunity or conflict. He says right there in verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So there's a danger here and the threat to peace is conflict or disunity. And the danger is that disunity is going to destroy peace with other people. Now, just pause for a moment and remember how these letters originally would have been distributed and, and experienced. This would have been a letter that Paul wrote from Rome to the church in Philippi, and somebody would get up like this, and they would say, oh, what is Paul the apostle written to us? And so they would come up, and they would read the letter in front of the church, and there in front of the church, Paul himself, in a public letter, calls out these two women who evidently were having such a huge conflict that Paul, who is in jail in Rome, heard about it. Now, that is a serious conflict. That's really not good. Like, nobody, and I'm sure it's not the thing you bring up first when you see Apostle Paul. How are things going to the church? And you're like, oh, it's good, it's good. But eventually it comes out. These two women are having a, ro- a battle royale in the church to the point where Paul just calls out people. Now, I asked Albert if I could just have a list of anybody that may be in conflict today that I could just read that, but he declined, which was disappointing. Um, but you get the feel of how intense this is. This is like, whoa, whoa, kind of right in the right. He's talking about Jesus, Jesus, and you and you agree. Right? That's the feel of this. So why would Paul call these people out publicly? Well, because the peace of the church is being destroyed. See, often we think that conflict in our lives only affects us or maybe just the other person that we're in the conflict with. But no, conflict affects everyone around us. It leads to the distraction. It leads to bitterness. It leads to sin. It destroys us. It destroys the person we're in conflict with. And it destroys and harms the people around us. And the irony is that some of the most wounding conflict can come inside the church. Often we think, well, nobody in the church would ever sin against one another, right? We're supposed to love Jesus. But the irony is that the dynamic of church is such that our spiritual lives 
and our kind of personal lives and emotional lives get wrapped up because this thing is really important to us, right? And we sort of are, when we come into church, we're sort of wearing our heart on our sleeve a little bit. Whereas, you know, at work or other contexts, we're a little bit more guarded. And yet we're putting ourselves out there. We're exposing our souls, in a sense, to one another. And with that can come some of the deepest wounds. You know, the deepest wounds in my life have not been things that somebody just random has said to me that have hurt and stuck with me. It's something that another Christian has said to me that's been painful or difficult. You know, our own church in El Paso um, started essentially out of a conflict where there was these two churches in town that decided to merge together because they thought it would be a great idea. And they formed this church called Church of the Covenant, meaning a covenant with the Lord and covenant with one another. We're going to be a new church together. And it lasted about a year. And then the two leaders got angry, decided to go their own separate ways. And our church sort of was what was left. We, we were left over. And over the long 30-plus year history of our church, there have been times where conflicts nearly destroyed the church. And the reality is, if you trace those conflicts back to their source, it usually wasn't some grand, like, Martin Luther theological moment. It was somebody got offended, and then offend, offense led to bitterness, and bitterness led to anger, and anger led to jealousy or judgment— And that led to lots of people being hurt. So, what is the solution then? So Paul can call out the conflict, but what's the solution? Look at Paul's solution. I entreat you, and I entreat you to agree in the Lord. That's his solution, right? You think, okay, you got to give them a little bit more to go on. you got to give us a little bit more to go on. But actually, that phrase, agree in the Lord, is really, really powerful. That word agree is the same word as when, in Philippians 2.2, 2, where Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, or have this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he says, agree, he's saying, I want you to be of one mind. And so what's happened is that Euodia is over here with one mind, and then Syntyche is over here with one mind, and Paul is saying, no, 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 no. I want you to put whatever your mindset is down, and I want you to come and have the mind of Christ, right? So rather than, let's see what the middle ground is between you and you, which may never work, Paul is saying, no, 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 forget your mind, have the mind of Christ. And it's when you each have the mind of Christ that you'll find yourself in unity. And then Paul encourages them with two reasons that they should have the same mind. He says that they have labored side by side with Paul. I mean, and that's a pretty high statement. And Paul, probably the foremost missionary of the early church, these two women were notably helpful in his missionary work. Which, side note, is like a lot of people say, like, oh, the Bible's view of women is terrible, blah, blah, blah. No, man. Paul is saying that these are two of the most helpful people in all of Christendom to me. Yodi and Syntyche, they're women. They're known, notable servants of the Lord. And yet... They find themselves in conflict. Sometimes we think, okay, well, once we become leaders or mature, then we just won't have any conflict anymore. No, it still happens. But he says, I want you to agree, have the mind of Christ, because I know that you love to labor for the cause of Christ. And then even further, he says that they both have their names written in the book of life. The reality is they need to get used to one another because they're going to be spending a lot of time together in eternity, right? More than what they've done lately 
or more than what they've done to other people. They are defined by the fact that Jesus died for them, that they believed in him, that they've been raised to new life and have a future and a hope with Jesus. Jesus has put his spirit in them. He's preparing a place for them in their looking ahead to eternity. And in looking down and beholding their salvation, they begin to have the mind of Christ. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's, he's kind of brilliant in this way. He's saying, listen, put your mindset down. Remember, you're a son or a daughter of Jesus, right? You've been saved and transformed, right? Is that, isn't that right? Oh, that's, that's true. Isn't that true of them too? Well, I, I guess. Like, sort of. Um, no, it's true. They they have been saved just the way you have, by grace, right? That's true. Haven't they been useful to the cause of Christ? Well, I mean, I guess back in the, a while ago, they were helpful, but not now. Like, no, no, no. Remember what they've done, how they've labored. You see, he's, he's forcing them to kind of lay down their mind and take hold of the mind of Christ. And I was in a, I was in a conflict with somebody in our church a few years ago, and they disagreed with me about both kind of the theological position I had and some personal positions I had. And they said some really, some things that really hurt me in a particular meeting. And I just began, there was this one thing they said, I won't tell you what it is, but there's one thing they said that was just like, ah, like, man. And so I remember I would take that comment and everything they would do, I would like look through the lens of that comment at them. And, and it's like, oh, they're that kind of a person. They would say that thing. And so even if they did something good, I'd be like, well, they're probably just faking it, you know, or like they're probably being a jerk on the inside. And, and yet it wasn't until, I mean, the Lord really had to use my elders and and help me. It wasn't until I was able to put that down and say, listen, are they, are they a child of, of, of the Lord? Yeah. Have they done anything good? Yeah. They've done a lot of stuff that's good. Do they love Jesus? I I think they do. Am I going to spend a lot of time with them in eternity? I probably will. And I began to change my lens to look through the lens of the way that Jesus, the way that the Lord sees them, the way that, the way, listen, are are they a co-laborer? Yes. Are they, um, are their names written in the book of life? Yes. That's the new lens through which Paul wants them to look to be able to um, reconcile with one another. And it's so important to note at this point that all of this encouragement in Philippians 4 is built on the theological foundations of earlier in the book. This is only possible because of what Jesus has done. In Ephesians 2, another letter of Paul's, he says that when Jesus died on the cross, he killed the hostility between one group and another. On the cross, Jesus suffered for our sins, and if That person that we're in conflict with has believed in Christ. Jesus has suffered for their sins too. So this is the good news. It means that we do not have to crucify each other for our sins, but rather look to Christ who is crucified for us. If we call out, like, give me justice, the cross answers back to us. You did not receive the justice that you earned, did you? You received grace instead. And so peace becomes possible when we remember that, listen, our sins have been paid for and their sins have been paid for. We've been raised to new life. They've been raised to new life. We've received grace. They've received grace. So there is hope for any conflict and every conflict with another Christian because of Jesus. So then how do we practically pursue this peace? Well, Paul does give some practical help. Um, 
Paul says this. He exhorts their true companion to help them agree in the Lord. So we don't know who the true companion is. It could have just been, I don't know, it could have been one of the elders of the church. It could have been one of the more mature members of the church. But Paul says, listen, you're going to need help. The Lord has provided help. Therefore, go to that person and allow that person to help you. All right, so that's one means of grace. And in fact, I love that Paul says, listen, complete my joy by having this mind. Meaning, complete my joy. If you want to make me really happy, one of the things that will make me really happy is you complete my joy by agreeing in the Lord. And we need people like that in the church. People who, when they see conflict with other people, don't just go like, oh man, I'm not going to touch that thing. Right? But who come and say, not in a kind of a weird, obtrusive way, like, hey, let me see what's going on. But, but rather come in and say, hey, listen, my heart's sad that I see you guys in conflict. Is there any way that I can help? Right? And maybe, and often the, the peacemaking that's needed is to help this person and this person step back and say, okay, listen, is their name written in the book of life? Yes. Are they a co-laborer in Christ with you? Yes. And so we need often help from others, and the Lord provides help in the church. But the second thing we need is a commitment to actually, to getting help, and then to actually following through and working toward unity. See, what Paul is asking them to do is to just commit to peacemaking. See, often we go in with sort of a half commitment to peacemaking, where we're like, listen, well, I'll take a step, and if they don't, then well, whatever, whatever, I'm out. Right? But rather he's saying, listen, no, you're going to doggedly and stubbornly commit that if it is possible at all, we're going to work this thing out. And if I have to get somebody else, we're going to get somebody else. If I have to humble myself, I'm going to humble myself. If I have to keep loving you till it hurts, I'm going to keep doing that. So how do we pursue peace with one another? Well, we commit to it through the power of Jesus. We commit to seeing them in a new light through their identity in Christ. And then we get help when we need it. That's the way Paul addresses this first threat to unity. But second, there's a a more personal threat coming up here. Second threat is anxiety. And this is verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. So the second threat to peace is anxiety. Paul moves from looking kind of out to the church to looking inside the Christian. Often the place that's hardest to find peace is not even out there, but it's in here, right? It's in her own minds. John Milton, the poet wrote, a mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. Meaning you could be going through a terrible circumstance and still be at peace. You've seen those people. Or you could be going through a wonderful circumstance and still, like me, find that one thing that's out and torment yourself with. That, that's the reality. Now, just a qualification. Anxiety here isn't the same as reasonable planning or reasonable concern. So if somebody you love gets very sick, you should be concerned, right? You should make a plan. You should take them to the doctor. You should work through that. But it crosses over into anxiety when it takes over, when it defines all of your thoughts, when you can't stop rolling it over and over in your mind, when you begin fretting about past decisions that you can't change, and and when you begin feeling and fearing all the future possibilities that could go wrong, all of that becomes anxiety. 
That's a little bit of a subjective line, but I think we could all tell when we cross over. If you can't tell, you could probably ask your spouse, and they'll tell you when you've crossed over. Not when the first time you go on um, WebMD, but the tenth time you go on WebMD, they're going to say, okay, you're going to shut the computer off now. Now, one other really important qualification about anxiety here as well is that there really can be um, medical conditions in the area of anxiety that require doctor evaluation and help. There are real disorders in this area. So I'm not saying that, hey, don't ever see a doctor under any circumstance. Don't take any medicine. There are times the Lord, through his common grace, allows that. And so if this is a real struggle for you, I'd encourage you to talk to a, a trusted Christian friend or a pastor or an elder who can help you kind of sort through that. But those the people that I know that have have gotten treatment medically for anxiety, acknowledge that there is still very much a spiritual component to it. And so the spiritual component is what we're going to be talking about right now. So the danger is that anxiety destroys our peace inside, but the solution is to be guarded by the peace of God. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, the answer to anxiety is peace. But notice that it is not peace from ourselves or found within ourselves. Sorry. It's a peace from outside us. The peace of God. It's become popular in the world lately to, to, to do mindful exercises and things like that where we're trying to find peace like somewhere down in here. If we can just get quiet enough, we'll find the peace in there. Paul's like, no, no, no. Listen, maybe you do need a break. Get out in creation. That's fine. But the peace that you long for is actually found not in yourself, but outside of yourself in God. And look at how beautiful this peace is. Don't you want this peace? This peace passes all understanding. And the effect of this peace is that it guards us. This word, the peace of God will guard, is This word is what would happen if the Roman soldiers in a city would flood out of the barracks and take up defensive positions around something like the governor's residence, right? So something's going down, something's, there's a mob that starts to form and all of a sudden they issue the call and the soldiers all rush out of the barracks and take up defensive positions. You've seen these pictures of Romans with their big shields, they're all armored up and they they, they have a, a defensive perimeter established. That's what Paul is saying. The peace of God in your mind will come out and will guard you. Will take up defensive positions around you. And it guards us both in heart and in mind, which I love. It guards us both in our emotions and our thoughts, which we need. And this peace, again, this is all built on the rest of Philippians. This peace is only possible because of Jesus. See, in our sin, we never could experience the peace of God because we had turned away from God. We'd rebelled against God. We had broken God's laws and therefore there was conflict between us and God. And that's why Jesus came. He came to make peace with God, to restore the shalom of God's creation. And on the cross, Jesus was treated as God's enemy so that we could be brought in and reconciled. Colossians 1.20 says that he made peace by the blood of his cross. So the conflict between us and God could only end in one way. If, if justice for our sins was poured out. That's what we deserved. And therefore we could never have peace. But Jesus stepped in and shed his blood so that we could be reconciled with God. So that then we could experience true peace. Jesus makes this peace that we did not earn and don't deserve possible. 
So then how do you, okay, so hopefully you're, you're thinking, okay, that peace that's out there, I like want that. <laughs> I want it to guard me. I want it to guard my heart and my mind. I want all of that. How do I get that? How do I practically apply it? Well, Paul gives two practical ways to apply this. First, you are to pray. Paul says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, often what anxiety results in is this constant internal monologue, right? Where you're talking to yourself. I don't know if I'm the only person that does this, but I talk to myself. And the problem with that is you never really get anywhere, do you? The reality is that in any situation that you're anxious about, there are maybe 10 things you can do. I mean, even the worst situation, there's maybe 10 things you could do, and there are probably about 10,000 things that you cannot do, 10,000 things you cannot affect. But the good news is this, that the Lord reigns. God, our Father, is the sovereign King of the universe. God is sovereign over all of those 10,000 things, so you talk to Him. God invites us to talk to him and and to let to rather than having this closed internal loop of anxiety dialogue going on in our our minds and hearts we're to open that up and talk to the lord and that's what you see all throughout the psalms amen listen we we did a a series last fall on the lord's prayer and it just has changed the way that i think about this forever the lord's prayer begins our father who is in heaven before any of your like prayer requests start rolling out, prayer first reminds us of who God is. And what are the two components of who God is? He's our Father who loves us, and He is in heaven, meaning He's the sovereign King. So it would be no good if we had a God that was like, oh, I love you. I just, oh, I just, I wish I could help, but you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry. Or it would be no good if we just had a guy that was in charge, but didn't love us. Yeah, I'm in charge. What? You know? But rather, the Lord's Prayer and, and this letter give us both together. It's our Father who loves us and who is sovereign and in charge. Therefore, Paul says, you want to get free from anxiety? Talk to him. Talk to that guy who loves you and is sovereign over everything. That's, listen, that's the first practical cure for anxiety. So think about it. When you're anxious, do you just talk to yourself or do you talk to God? Jesus, I love Jesus. Sometimes I, I really do think we miss some very intentional humor that Jesus has when he says nobody by anxiety can add a single day to his life. Like I would love to, he's like, show me the person that through the sheer force of anxiety has resulted in an extra day of living. It's not going to happen. But scripture also says that the prayer of a righteous person avails much or accomplishes much. So the reality is this, perhaps our prayers aren't answered every time in the way that we would like them to be answered. But if our prayer request is godly, right, is in line with the heart of God, then anytime we even receive a no in prayer is because God has something better planned. That God's answer in his great love for us and his great sovereignty is maybe not yet or not now or I have something better. But it's never, no, I don't love you. Or no, I can't help you. And so Paul is saying, listen, rather than getting wrapped up in that dialogue, go to the Lord. You know, when, this is a few years ago, my son Ford is five now. And when he was, was he two when he had his febrile seizure? 
too, yeah. So when he was two years old, we were hanging out with friends at our house, and he basically, he was, he was a little sick, a little, something was off with him, and he started to like get woozy, tried to stand up, and then fell smack back, just fell over back on the back of his head, and then started seizing. And so he seized for probably, seemed like five hours, but it was probably like 30 to 50 seconds. And so uh, we called 911, and they, you know, sent the, the fire department right over, an ambulance right over, and they could not immediately at that moment determine what was ca- what caused the seizure. And basically they said, if the fall caused the seizure, then he has brain damage, and we have to get him to the hospital right away. And so I told him... Um, Okay, they're asking, like, which hospital do you want to go to? And I knew our insurance covered one more than the other. I was like, well, we, our insurance covers this one. And one of the paramedics looked at me and said, no, if it was my kid, I would take you to the children's hospital and not care how much it costs. And I was like, okay, sure, we're doing that. And that's my first clue. Like, this, is, this might not be good. So I remember driving behind the ambulance. Jen was in the ambulance with Ford. I was driving behind the ambulance with, fortunately, one of my pastors. We're driving there, and when we get there, this has never happened to me when you go to the ER. When we got there, they, like, opened the doors of the ambulance, and, like, people came out of the hospital to take him in, and three doctors were around him right away, and they were all speaking in a way that was, like, like some foreign language to me. And I thought, oh, boy, like, this is, this is not good. When you have people meet you at the hospital speaking, like, and there's multiple doctors, this is not a good situation. And I remember... Um, feeling like, like never before the knife of anxiety just like slide into my gut when, with the feeling, I cannot do anything. There's nothing that I can do. And that's where, it's, it's funny, in the Lord's humor and his providence, there was this song that I had like rolled over and over in my mind because he had a similar experience when he was right after he was born, he had to go back into the hospital because he was born a bit early and got really bad jaundice. And so I was freaking out. It's my first kid. I don't know how to process that. The Lord brought that song back to my mind, which was hope in God, oh my soul, for he is strong and he's strong to save. Hope in God, for he's a rock and a, and a fortress. And I just thought, okay, there are 10,000 things at this moment that I cannot affect. There's one thing I can do is talk to the guy who can't affect those things, who loves me, who loves that kid. And so that's what I did. And it was funny. It was, Jen and I joke about this still. It was one of those moments where it was like my anxiety actually lifted the most in my life because I'm normally anxious about everything. And I just thought, okay. It was, it was almost like it was such an extreme case that there wasn't even one thing I could do. Where normally I would focus on the 10 things I could do. And I just opened my hand and said, all right, Lord, he is your son. And I have to trust you. And, and yet what's hard is to apply that lesson to my everyday life. Where, you know, a few weeks ago, I'm in a car accident. My car is totaled. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get another car. I wasn't planning to get another car. And I'm just, I'm wrapped up with anxiety. But here's the thing. The same thing that was true about God in that moment at the hospital is also true when you get in an unexpected accident. It's also true when you fail a test you didn't think you were going to fail. It's also true when you find yourself in conflict with somebody you didn't expect, right? The same thing is true. And so that's what Paul encourages us. Let your request be made known to God. Talk to your father. All right, second thing to do. Second thing, and I love this. This is so good. I'm really bad at this one too. Um, He says, verse 4, 
I'm going a bit out of order, I'm sorry. But verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And this, I wish we could just do an overview of all of Philippians. Paul has been encouraging the church toward joy this whole letter. And this is now sort of the pinnacle command about joy in the letter. What happens is Paul starts early. He, he talks in, in chapters 1 and 2 about how he is rejoicing. I'm rejoicing over you. But in, in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, listen, even if I get poured out and die, I'm still rejoicing. And then in, in chapter 3, he switches. And rather than talking about his example of having joy in any circumstance, he says, you rejoice in the Lord. He gives it as a command. So he's shown them by example, and then he gives it to them in a command, and then he gives it to them again in verse 4. And listen to this command. Rejoice in the Lord, command, always, right? Every circumstance, any circumstance, semicolon. Again, I will say, rejoice. It's almost as Paul is like, he knows that we're just not going to get this easily. He knows there's going to be, you ever have one of those commands where you give your kid a command and you're like, hey, buddy, I want you to go do this. And he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, no, come here. I want you to take this and put it in the trash. Okay, buddy, put this in the trash. Oh, okay. Like, you thought, okay, I finally got through to the kid. He's going to do it, right? This is what Paul is doing with us. He knows that the command to rejoice is not something that we're going to default to. He knows we need to hear it a couple different times. And, he com- and his command is so broad and far-reaching, he wants it to be true at any time and every time. There is no situation, apparently, according to the Apostle Paul, that like, allows you to get out of the command to rejoice. It's like, well, I surely can't rejoice because here, this is what's going on. He's like, no, rejoice in the Lord always. And side note, remember, Paul is writing this from a Roman jail cell. Right? Probably chained up to two guys. Doesn't know if he's going to live or die every day. And so he's got like the most extreme command. And if he can rejoice, he's telling you, you can rejoice. And actually, this is the funny thing. This rejoicing is one of the paths out of anxiety. And, And these two things are tied together. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord always. See, thanksgiving... Forcing ourselves to give thanks in the situation reminds us of what is true about the Lord, but that we so quickly forget when we're caught in anxiety. It reminds us of what is true. See, rejoicing and thanksgiving are two of the most powerful antidotes to anxiety in the universe. Because anxiety brings us into a world where God is not there. God is not in control. And God is not good. Right? When we're anxious, we're anxious because either we think, well, nobody's in control, or he doesn't love us, or there's no help to be found. But rejoicing and thanksgiving put God essentially back into the picture. It's like, no, that's true. Man, he is still there. He is still at work. Listen, I've got a a friend who I serve with on our pastoral team back home. And the Lord saved him uh, literally while he was super high trying to spend the rest of his money on drugs and die. And the Lord, like, brought to mind some verses. He spoke to him. He saved him out of that. And so he's mo- one of the most upbeat guys in the world, which is a good, like, compliment to me. Because I'm like the Eeyore. He's like the Tigger of the office. 
And what was awesome is, it's not like he doesn't go through hard stuff. And there was, there was a particular time where he, he and his family were going through something difficult. And I remember him saying, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he, he basically, I said, hey man, how are you doing with this? And he said, man, it is hard. This circumstance, this health issue with my daughter is really hard. But you know what? If the Lord hadn't saved me, I wouldn't even be here with my family. I'd be strung out on drugs or dead. So, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> and I'm happy to care for my daughter. And I just thought, man, okay, you can't beat that perspective, right? It's, it's like, yep, even in that circumstance, he found something to thank the Lord for. And similarly, we always can find things to thank the Lord for. And in thanking the Lord for those things, in rejoicing in the middle of difficult circumstances, it puts the Lord back into our view. And then, and these two things are tied, it then invites us to pray to him, right? When we force ourselves to rejoice and give thanks, it leads our heart to prayer. And when we pray, we find things unexpectedly to rejoice over and give thanks for. So when you're anxious, next time, try this. Try pausing, considering what can you rejoice over? What can you thank God for? And I think you'll find that they help to break the spell of anxiety in a sense. All right. Well, the the closing charge is to stand firm. That was verse one, right? So we're going to circle back around to that. What does that command have to do with these these two topics of, of peace outside of us and peace inside of us. Well, this stand firm command, I believe, applies to standing firm in the peace of Christ. And this is the key. We do not create peace with others. We do not create peace in our souls. Jesus has already done it in the truest theological sense. So Jesus has already created peace with others. Ephesians 4 charges us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He doesn't say create the unity of the Spirit. He says maintain the unity of the Spirit. Jesus has brought us to himself. He has therefore then brought us to one another. What we could not do, Jesus has already done. So our charge is to maintain what Jesus has done. See, in the middle of conflict, we think, man, I can never create peace with this person. What Paul is saying is, no, you actually already have the peace of Christ. You need to see it again. You need to grab hold of it again. You need to appropriate it again. And then internally, Jesus has created peace with God and so created peace within us. Jesus laid his life down and rose again so that we could be at peace with God. He's given us a promise to never leave us. He's given us the promise of eternal life. And what we could not do, what we could never do, Jesus has already done. And so rather than trying to kind of work up some kind of peace on ourselves, no, we need to remember it, embrace it, and live it. Listen, closing encouragement here. Maybe you're like me and you're thinking, man, look, I deal with anxiety, I deal with conflict, and he's just talking a lot about Jesus, not a lot about the practicals. Like, give me the five tips to solve conflict and the five things to do in the middle of an anxiety attack. And listen, that's kind of the emphasis of this passage as well. It's not full of practical details. It's full of a lot of theological truths. But I think that that's okay. And I think it's okay because I think it's the only way to actually get at peace. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the only way to stop being absorbed with yourself is by becoming absorbed with someone else, right? And so anxiety and conflict thrive on us being absorbed in ourselves. 
And the peace of God then is found outside of us when we become absorbed with the person and work of Jesus. So um, here's, here's a couple, couple thoughts as we close. Um, this may not be one of those messages where you immediately go home and you're like, okay, good, I'm done. Got it, good to go. I really want to encourage you. Take these, and, and maybe one of the two halves. Maybe the outside conflict is more the thing you're dealing with. Take this, meditate on it, and just ask that the Lord would help you with it. Or if the internal thing is hard, ask that the Lord would help you with it. So do two things. One, meditate on the passage this week. Two, talk to a friend about it. Talk to somebody else about it. Open up this area of your life and ask for help with it. And three, find something even in that situation, to rejoice in and thank the Lord for. So let's, do you want them to stand and pray up? I don't know how you guys end. Otherwise, wait, I could, you guys are done. Have a good day. Oh, I pray. Okay, that'd be good because the message is about prayer. I should do that. Yeah. Thanks, Alb. See, this is why I need Alb in my life. He's like, he's like, hey, maybe you should pray to end since you talked about that. I'm like, oh, yes. Okay. So let's do that. Let me bow our heads and let's, let me just ask that the Lord would, would help today. Lord, we just confess, and I'm at the front of the line. We confess, God, we are often a people that lack peace and give ourselves over to anxiety and conflict. And Lord, so much of that is because we become, like Lloyd-Jones says, absorbed with ourselves. We become absorbed with the circumstances or what's going on in our lives. We become absorbed with what that person said or did or didn't do or should have said. And Lord, we lack peace. But Lord, we rejoice that the peace that we could not create on our own, Lord, you have already won for us. And so the beautiful news today, Jesus, is we don't have to come up with this. We don't have to dig deep and get this going. Lord, you have already done it. And so we ask for grace today that you would help us live this and experience this. Lord, I pray for anyone that's in conflict, whether that's in marriage or friendships or whatever. Lord, would you just... Speak the peace of God over that situation. Would those two people see you, become absorbed in you, see their names both written in that same book, and find fellowship again? Lord, I pray for anyone that's dealing with anxiety. Maybe it's even been a private battle that they've never let anyone in on. Lord, I pray you would speak the peace of God over them. Lord, that as we turn and rejoice in who you are, Lord, I pray that you would help right now break the chains of anxiety on their hearts and on their minds, that you would send the peace of God to flood their hearts, to guard their hearts and minds. In the name of Jesus, amen.